This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live recordings of talks direct from the Sydney Opera House stage. My name's Edwina Throsby, and I head up the Talks and Ideas program. Today's podcast features another stellar event from Antidote, our new festival of art, action and ideas. Michael White is a man whose many accomplishments include co-founding the Global Occupy movement. I hosted this session and Micah and I talked about why he thinks traditional forms of protest are broken and what we can do next if we want to change the world. What we're going to talk about is one of the most important questions facing us right now, which is how do we create the transformative social change that we want, that we know that we need? So I'm going to basically say a few things, say a lot of ideas, and then we're going to come over here, we're going to have a a discussion, and there's also going to be opportunity for you to ask questions. But before I start, I want to say something I think is really important, which is that I'm going to say some things that are going to make you feel uncomfortable, (laughs) okay? And so instead of running from those uncomfortable feelings, I want you just to take note of what they are, because I've learned in my own experience that the ideas that make us most uncomfortable are precisely the ones that hold some sort of key to unlocking something that we need to, some place that we need to go. You know, the idea of Occupy Wall Street made a lot of people uncomfortable, the idea that we would sleep in the park and all this kind of stuff. So I'm not here to kind of like get you to agree with me per se as to expand the way we think about the protest. Okay, so let's get into it. I'm going to give you a bunch of ideas and then we're going we're gonna to kind of like try to figure this out together. So the essence of protest, it really was captured by Rousseau in the very beginning of the social contract when he said that man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Okay, This is the fundamental predicament of our world, is that we are born into a world that we didn't choose the laws of and which, in in a certain sense, enslaves all of us. And we're born and we want to be able to create transformative change. So I've been an activist my entire life. I actually started when I was 13. Um, at 17, I created my first national campaign. At 28, Occupy Wall Street, etc. And so one of the things that I've learned about social protest and revolution is that it's a very interesting phenomenon. If you look at revolution as a social phenomenon, there's four things about it that are very interesting and unique. The first is that it's one of the most complex social phenomena that exists, involving countless individuals, all different kinds of motivations. The second is that it that revolutions always tend to reoccur throughout human history. So we have records of revolution going back to ancient Egypt, like three, 4,000 years ago, and we know that revolutions have tended to reoccur throughout human history since then. Third, they always come as a surprise. It's an amazing social phenomenon because they seem to arise at the very moment in which they seem least likely, which is what was, that was true of Occupy Wall Street, that was true of the Arab Spring, etc., And at the same time, they are necessary for the progress of civilization. We know that all of the, basically, the great leaps forward that we've made in terms of democracy, you know, eight-hour workday, all of, you know, labor rights have happened through some sort of revolutionary awakening, some sort of grand social movement. Okay. So in this talk, I just want to, I'm going to go through four things. One, what is the problem that we're facing? Why is it a problem? Who is affected by this? And what is the solution? So let's talk about the problem. So back in 2011, if you remember that magical time, um, the Arab Spring erupted in Egypt after a fruit seller in Tunisia burned himself in protest because his fruit cart was confiscated. And from there, protests spread from Tunisia. They spread to Egypt, where the people of Egypt went into their squares in February of 2011, and they said, um, you know, Mubarak must go. And Mubarak did go. He did stand down. He stepped down. 
And then the protests spread to Spain, and the people of Spain went into their squares, and they started to hold these consensus-based decision-making assemblies, these democratic assemblies. At the time, I was working for a magazine called Adbusters in Canada, and we put out this call basically saying, okay, let's combine what's happening in Egypt, which is the idea of going to a place of symbolic importance, with what's happening in Spain, which is the idea of holding these consensus-based assemblies. Let's do those actions together on Wall Street. And if, we, if we're able to do that, we'll kick off some sort of revolutionary wave. So this email we sent out to our network, we called it a tactical briefing. We picked the day of Occupy Wall Street. We picked the name of Occupy Wall Street. We, we identified that it was going to be a leaderless movement, and, and we basically defined the tactic. And so within 24 hours of sending that out, people in New York took up the idea, and they ran with it. And from that point forward, the founder of Adbusters and I, who had come up with the idea of Occupy, no longer had any control over, nor did we want to have control over the movement. This is one of the kind of features of today's social movements. Okay, it was amazing. <laughs> and everything I'm about to say doesn't diminish from the fact that Occupy Wall Street was amazing. It spread to 82 countries, it involved in almost 1,000 cities, millions of people around the world participated. It was the first, I think, great uh, social movement of you know, the internet era to, to a certain extent. I mean, before that, we had like the anti-war movement in 2003. So Occupy was absolutely amazing. But at the same time, it failed, okay? We failed to achieve our primary objective, which was to, come, was, which was to you know, change how power functioned in our society, to give greater power to the 99%. We didn't get money out of politics. We didn't destroy you know, the power of Wall Street. It wasn't a total failure. Obviously, there was benefits and everything like this. But one of the things I'm trying to get across is that it was a constructive failure. And when I say a constructive failure, I mean that it that in failing, it taught us something very important about the state of contemporary activism. In many ways, it's really important to understand that Occupy Wall Street was basically, it was the realization, it was the culmination of the dream we had been chasing as activists. I've been an activist since I was 13, and I had always been told, if you can create a mass movement with millions of participants that's largely nonviolent, that you know, has a largely unified message, then change will happen. Finally, at the age of 28, I managed to be a part of that, and we created it, and it failed. And that actually is good news in a sense, because now we don't have to change, we don't have to chase that same storyline of social protest. We can look for other ways of creating dramatic social change. Okay, that said, the main purpose of this talk is to give you two big ideas, okay? So here's the first big idea that I want to get across, which is I want to expand how we think about social change. How does social change happen? So there's basically, um, if you think about revolution and social change, it's the, it's the intersection of humans on their environment, okay? So if you kind of diagram this out, you come up with the following diagram. On the bottom half of the diagram are theories of revolution that say that revolution is a process involving our material world. And on the top are theories that say that revolution is a process that's uh, involving our, um, uh, our immaterial world. And on the left side are, are theories of revolution that say that revolution is something that involves humans. And on the right side is something that says, oh, revolution is a process that doesn't involve humans. Okay, so I run through this because most dominant forms of activism fall into the bottom left-hand corner, which says that revolution is a process involving humans on the material world. This is, this is called voluntarism, and this is why activists talk about 
direct action and the idea that we need to get out there into the streets, we need to make, we need to make a, you know, physical action in the streets is what's going to change things. That's what revolution is. And that's, that's, the dominant, that's the dominant conception of activism. The important thing to realize is all four of these that I'm going to run through are true, okay? So this is, this is true. This is true. It's absolutely true that, that some element of revolution involves getting physical bodies into the streets. Um, the perfect example of this, of course, is in the environmentalist movement. Like, they actually have people, they go and they block, they, like, shut down coal plants. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that's what they believe is the number one way to create, like, a, a change. Okay, so it, it's true. But there's another way of looking at it which is that revolution is actually a process involving the natural world, but not involving humans. Okay, so what would this look like? Well, this we're familiar with a little bit from like Marxist historical materialism, but in contemporary times, a really good example is food prices. So there's been this really compelling study, it's fascinating actually, that says that once food prices reach a certain point, that's when revolutions tend to occur. So the argument here is that the number one um, deciding factor about a revolutionary moment has nothing to do with us protesting in the streets or anything like that. It's actually just food prices. And lo and behold, Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring coincided with record high food prices. You see? So as activists, we could say, hmm, let me go check on the food price. So the UN actually has a food price index. You can go on the internet, you can check it out. You can say, oh, look, you know, right now we're below that threshold. I don't live in a time of revolutionary uh, you know, a revolutionary awakening. I can prepare and do other behaviors right now. It's okay not to be in the streets protesting. Okay? I know this is extremely controversial for activists because one of the things we do as activists is we act. And if we're not acting, then we're not being activists. So how dare we say... But, you know, if you go back and you read Marx and Engels and stuff, they would actually talk about, like... Like, Engels wrote to Marx and he would say, you know... I'm kind of taking a break right now. I just don't really feel like there's a revolutionary moment, you know? And, and activists today, we just don't say that to each other. I think it's really, it's really problematic. That's why we burn out so much. Okay. So food prices. So now we're going to go up to these theories of change that say that revolution is a process involving humans, but not our natural, not our physical reality, not our physical material world. So what does this mean? This is subjectivism. And this, I think we're getting, we're kind of familiar with. It's this idea that um, if you want to change the world, you have to change how you see the world. <laughs> have you ever heard people talk about this kind of stuff? Marianne Williamson, Course in Miracles. Um, so if you, if, you want to, if you want to change the world, it starts with meditating, uh, yoga, these kinds of like inner transformations. And I think at first, you know, this seems ridiculous, but actually it kind of makes a weird sense because we know that how our emotions are impacts how we perceive the reality. So for example, you break up with your girlfriend and all of a sudden it's like the trees are crying and the birds are really unhappy and like we're probably going to get hit by an asteroid or whatever, you know. Um, but then you fall in love and everything's like, oh, maybe it's more optimistic than I thought. I think everything's, you know, so, so it's kind of like that. So in a certain sense, what's interesting about this theory is it would say, hmm, is there something about the, the dominant narratives of leftism that's actually hurting us? Like, is there something about the apocalyptic... Uh, negativity of the left that actually means that we're stuck in a non-revolutionary moment. You can play with that all you want in your minds. I don't know, necessarily. But, so that's the third option. And then the fourth option we're going to get into is the most controversial of all. This is the one that revolution is a process not involving humans and not involving the material world. Wow, what would this be? So this one's called, I call it theurgism, which literally means um, God work or how the Greeks would call sorcery. So what does this mean? It means that revolution is a kind of divine intervention into our world. 
Now, we're gonna, I'm going to expand your theory of change right here, because as soon as I, am, I bring up this one, people say, because of the left. I mean, I'm from the left, too. We have a very deep secularism. Oh, my gosh. So don't even, what would you even bring up God in relation to revolution? So, so I come prepared with a few anecdotes, just to, like, just to make sure that you don't think I'm making this up. Okay. So theurgism. Let's talk about divine intervention and its role in revolution. The first and most obvious example, obviously, is Christianity. Christianity. Now, what's remarkable about Christianity is that Christianity was persecuted for like 300 years. They would take Christians and they would just like throw them into, you know, into the arena and people would just watch them get eaten by lions, okay? And yet, Christianity has become the world, like one of the world's great and dominant religions. How did this happen? How did this happen? Did the Christians march in the streets? No, they didn't march in the streets. Was there record high food prices? No, I don't think so. How did it happen? Well, Constantine the Great, I'm simplifying things, obviously, but Constantine the Great was on, on, on a march to battle against a rival emperor, and he looks up into the sky the night before the battle, and he sees a cross in the sky. Apparently, his whole army saw it too. That night, he goes to bed, and he dreams, and a man visits him in his dreams and says, if you put that cross on your shields and on your helmets, then you will win the battle. It's called the Cairo, the symbol. And he wakes up, he talks to his advisors, and they tell him that was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So the weird thing is Constantine's advisors were Christian, and his mother was Christian too. They tell him that was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ visited you in a dream. So Constantine puts the cross onto his, his a soldier's uh, uniform, shield, shields, or whatever, wins the battle, and, and Rome, the Roman civilization becomes Christian practically overnight. Within a generation, paganism is banned. Okay. But what's the point of that story? The point of that story, obviously, is that Christianity won because one person had a dream that they ascribed to Jesus. That's fascinating. As from an activist perspective, that is fascinating because that means, and there's, I mean, not to make simplify the argument, you can get more complex when you're thinking about it. You can say, well, is there something that the Christian ideology was doing in order to inspire people to have dreams of Jesus Christ? Because we also know that, for example, St. Paul saw Jesus. Maybe there was something about the ideology of Christianity. All I'm trying to say is, It could so happen that the way that our movements win is through a similar process of someone in power having a dream of our movement. So there's just, I'm opening up how we're thinking. Okay, let's discard Christianity because we're we're on the left. Maybe we don't want to talk about that. Okay, (laughs) we don't, I'm not trying to say, you know, I'm not very religious. I started actually as an atheist activist. So even for me to go into Christianity pushes my limits. Okay, well, let me give you another example. And this one is, I'm going to be honest with you. This one's a little bit more out there. Bear with me. Okay. In the 19th century, excuse me, in the early 20th century, there was a Russian cosmologist, and he started to study sunspot activity. Okay? Now, the sun follows like an 11-year sunspot cycle where there's sunspots are just basically, you know, dark areas on the sun. And, and every 11 years, there's more and there's fewer and it's very hard to predict exactly how many there are going to be. But throughout human history, people have been watching the sun, and they've been recording how many there are because it's a very interesting phenomenon. And so he started to study the history of sunspots. He went all the way back to, I think, like you know, 500 BC or even before because we have extensive records throughout human history of people recording this number. And he discovered that, oh my gosh, sunspots, that revolutions tend to occur during periods of peak sunspot activity. Now... Do you, do you understand what I'm saying here? Okay. <laughs> so the sun 
has sunspots and revolutions on Earth tend to occur when there's a lot of sunspots on the sun. So Stalin threw this guy into the gulag because this theory violates the core assumption of Marxism, which is that of materialism. We talked about voluntarism and structuralism. That's what they believe. That's it. Okay. So he goes into the gulag and his theory is discredited now. Okay. I looked it up. The first day of Occupy Wall Street, record high sunspot activity. <laughs> it's insane. What does that mean? Okay. So I have, I have other examples. We can get into it in the discussion. I have other examples. But the thing that's depressing, I mean, not depressing, I don't know. It's not that, see, the thing is, is none of these, you have to use all of them together. So none of them are overwhelmingly determinative um, because, because otherwise I'd be very depressed because um, unfortunately scientists say that we're entering a period of, of epically low sunspot activity. <laughs> so if we, if we were to believe that that was the only way revolution happened, then I would probably um, have to... I don't know what I would do. I'd be very depressed. Okay. So, 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 so the first big idea I want to get across to you is these four different ways of looking at, at social change, expanding our theory of social change, that voluntarism, marching in the streets, is not the only and, not the do- and should not be the dominant. I think in our, in our contemporary moment, actually, the powers that be, you know, they're tremendously power, powerful in the physical reality. Right now, they have soldiers, they have guns, all this kind of stuff. They can do, evict our encampments. But they're very weak in the other areas. They're very weak in, you know, they're slightly weak in structuralism because climate change, going back to the record high food prices of the Arab Spring, that climate change is what induced those record high food prices. Okay, there's a cyclone hit Australia, actually pushed up the sugar prices, and that ended up filtering through to the global economy, blah, blah. Okay. And they're also very, I think, weak at the level of subjectivism, and they're extremely weak at the level of theurgism. I wonder how they're live captioning theurgism. I don't know how they're going to do that. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So number three, why is this a problem? Why is this a problem? Okay. Let's take a step back. Why, is it, why does it matter? <laughs> no, that's not how you say Okay. That's not right. That's not right. Um, that's all right. That's all right. Okay. <laughs> We're getting very meta over here. I got to. <laughs> so, so why is it a problem? Now, this is this is the second big idea I want to get into, which is the idea of sovereignty. Sovereignty, I think, is the most important thing for activists to be thinking about. What is the meaning of sovereignty, and how do we capture sovereignty? Okay. So, underpinning our democracy, this is why. The, if protest is broken, it's actually it's, it's a significant problem for contemporary society. It doesn't just mean that activists are flailing. It means that all of us are suffering. So why is that? So if you look at, like, democracy, okay, underpinning our Western notion of democracy is this idea of popular sovereignty. And what that means is that our, the basis of our governments is the consent of the willed. You guys have heard this notion. So... This comes from the Declaration of Independence in America, but also in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It talks about how um, the authority of the government, you know, the, the will of the people is the basis for the authority of government. Now, ah, it's such a beautiful notion. And this is, I think, I think as activists, we really have believed this naively, perhaps. We've really believed that, that the basis for our government is the consent of the governed or the will of the people. And so our job as activists has been to has been to demonstrate, a, to manifest an alternate will of the people, you see? So if, for example, take the 2003 anti-war march. We organized 
millions and millions of people all over the world in every single country to exert a collective will saying no to the war under the assumption that the authority of the government rested upon the collective will of the people. And if we could demonstrate that the collective will of the people disagreed with our government, our governments would have to listen. But it turned out not to be true. So this actually means that if protest is broken because there's something wrong with popular sovereignty, then democracy itself is in crisis. There's a link between the death, the, the, the broken, that protest is broken and our current state of democracy. And in a certain sense, I would say that the failure of protest demonstrates that maybe we don't live in democracies anymore. Because if, if, the, if the authority of government doesn't derive from the consent of the will or doesn't derive from the will of people, then maybe it's not a democracy. It's a very dangerous situation in which we are now living. And so the failure of protest opens that up. Okay, so who is affected by this? Clearly, the answer is all of us, okay? <laughs> I think that it's really important that we understand that the, that the crisis within activism impacts all of us. Um, and in fact, I think it pushes, pushes us into kind of an existential crisis about the world in which we live. So in America right now, we have... Uh, Donald Trump as president. Now, if, if it's true that, he doesn't, that his authority does not derive from the consent of the governed, well, then we're in a very dangerous state because um, he has the nuclear codes. He's justified then in doing any sort of behavior that he wants, you see, so we're in a, different, we're in a difficult position. All right, so what is the solution? What is the solution? What's the positive way of looking at this? And then we're going to get into and a free-flowing discussion. What is the positive way? Well, it seems to me that the tremendously positive outcome of, of, of Occupy Wall Street's failure is that it has demonstrated the problem of popular sovereignty, that sovereignty doesn't seem to exist through the streets alone. But it does highlight that there are two remaining avenues to capturing sovereignty. So capturing sovereignty, I think, needs to be the goal of activism. And there's two remaining ways in which you can capture sovereignty in our world. You can't capture it in the streets, but you can capture it by winning wars or by winning elections. It's the only two ways that are left. Um, and so we can use protests to win wars, and we can use protests to win elections, but protests alone will no longer give us sovereignty. So I personally believe that we should win elections. And I think we should do that both strategically and morally. I think that if we look at, it seems to me that whenever the left has embraced this idea that we're going to somehow win, a, win the war path, it's like the last gasp of the movement. You know what I mean? Like look at the 70s. It's like, it's something about it that's so um, ultimately unrealistic. And so, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to argue for winning elections. And if you disagree with me, what's interesting about the position of disagreeing with me is that you end up having to argue for war. And so, which is fine, which is fine. You can do that. And I, and I can play devil's advocate and I can help you brainstorm ways that we could win the war. Um, but I just want to highlight that is that, it, is that for those who reject trying to do the elections route, you are stuck with such a much darker vision of what route to go, quite frankly. Okay. So what does it mean when I say that we should win elections? What does it mean when I say that we should use social protests and social movements to win elections? Now, I'm not trying to say that we should follow the standard progressive electoral strategy. So what is the standard progressive electoral strategy? It goes something like this. It says, we need to identify someone who's really good. And that good person's going to have good ideas. 
And when they're elected, good stuff is going to happen. You see? It's this kind of like beautiful vision of that, that leader who can just save us because they're good, you know? And on the right, they just turn it more as like, because they're strong, you know? So strong and good. No, I'm not trying to say that we need to find a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren. Those are in American context. I don't know necessarily who your equivalent to the Bernie Sanders is, but, but whoever it is, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, please don't follow that person, okay? I don't believe in that. Instead, I'm trying to argue for, some, for a new strategy, okay? So the power of social movements, in a certain sense, is that they can get people to do a whole near, new series of complex behaviors, and they can spread very quickly. So what I'm imagining is that you would have a social movement that, first of all, got people to do behaviors that were traditionally associated with political parties. So in, Amer- in the American context, in order to get a third party onto the ballot in all 50 states, you have to collect something like a million and a half signatures. Okay? That sounds like a horrible and impossible task. And actually, in 2016, our Green Party was unable to do it. So it's quite difficult, of course. But social activists can get millions of people into the streets with, like, two months organizing. In fact, we did it with the Women's March. There's four million people who marched in the Women's March in America, I believe. So if you have to gather a million and a half signatures, to me, it seems quite easy that we could have just done that in, like, one day, you know? And so what I'm saying is that social movements can say the way that we're protesting is getting people into the streets in order to collect signatures so that we can be on the ballot. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this idea of how does the movement maintain control over decision-making? I think that Occupy was right that we need leaderlessness, okay? But we need the way we conceived of an Occupy was limited, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, the, the thrust of it is correct, is that leaders will always, always um, fail us. And the right is learning this right now with Donald Trump. I mean, the, 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 they will always fail us. And so we need to have a situation where the movement picks delegates, and those delegates represent the movement's opinions. And when they need to make big decisions, they ask the movement what they want. And then the third element that I'm imagining is that this would be a global thing. So Occupy spread to 82 countries. I'm imagining, wow, we would wake up and it would be like, there's this social movement and they're campaigning in Australia and they just won against all odds. And now they've moved on to the elections in Canada. Will they also win there? And then it's like the same. So instead of having Instead of it being synchronized around the world at the same time, it would be like a sequential movement wave around the world, which is actually kind of what the right wing has been doing a little bit, where we've been watching them. But the left can do the same thing, I think, much more compellingly. Okay. So I'm gonna, the last thing I'm going to say, and then we're going to go into questions, is I'm going to give you a, an, a concrete example, a concrete example of what this could look like. Okay. Because it seems very abstract and it almost seems impossible, but I'm very inspired by the five-star movement in Italy. So I'm going to talk just very briefly about the Five Star Movement in Italy. So I went to Italy. I got to meet with the co-founders of the Five Star Movement. Um, The Five Star Movement, what's first of all interesting about the Five Star Movement is they call themselves a movement, and yet they're the second or third largest political party in the country. Okay, So they're a movement, but they are a political party too. Now, there's a very interesting thing that happened recently, which is um, they got one of their delegates, one of the members of their movement, was elected to be mayor of Rome. Now, that's a very big deal, obviously. She was elected mayor of Rome. And the important, most important thing to understand about the Five Star Movement is they are an anti-corruption party. This is how they started. They started as a party that, that was against the corruption of parliamentarians. Okay. So she gets selected to be the mayor of Rome, and like within a month, she is embroiled in a corruption scandal. <laughs> it's just, 
Italian politics, right? It's horrible. So her right-hand man or whatever was selling access. He was being corrupt, okay? It gets revealed. And I think the response to the five-star movement is a watershed in, in like, political theory. I think this is, like, the most brilliant thing that ever happened. Okay. So most political parties, what would they do when one of their leading stars is, convinced, is, is, is accused of corruption? Well, of course, they would say it's fake news. Um, it's not real. She's not corrupt. She's actually the most good person that you've ever met in your entire life. How dare you say that about our party, et cetera. They would just lie. But what did the Five Star Movement do? Within 48 hours, 48 hours, they said, this is corruption. We cannot tolerate corruption in our movement because we're an anti-corruption movement. And so from this point forward, all important decisions that she makes will be made by us. That's amazing. They took back decision-making power from their candidate, and she accepted it. You see, this to me, I think, is a fundamental shift in the way we conceive of politics, is that the movement is more powerful than the person that they elected. It's completely opposite. That could never happen in an American political context right now. So that's what I'm trying to get across, is this idea that the movement would be electing people who are delegates, but when those people go against the principles of the movement, the power would be stripped from them, you know? Okay. So those are, the, those are the big ideas I wanted to go through. So this is the problem, that protest is broken. Why is it a problem? Because it reveals something very troubling about our contemporary state of democracy. Who is affected by this? All of us. Because if there's a lack of democracy in any of these Western countries, um, things could spiral very dangerously. Very, very dangerously, I think, with Donald Trump. We see that. And what is the solution? It's the creation of social movements that can win elections in multiple countries in order to carry out a global agenda. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Micah. So much to talk about. So much to talk about. I've, um, when I read your book, and Micah's book, The End of Protest, is like a must-read for wannabe revolutionaries. Um, it is... It, it is uh, extremely detailed and thorough and, in fact, quite quite like brilliantly researched um, history of protest, not just in terms of actual protests, but in terms of theories of protest as well. So I urge you to buy it in the foyer afterwards. Michael will sign it for you. Mm. Um, but when I was reading that book, I was struck by the tensions, I think, that are kind of inherent in sort of activism in, 20, in 2017, um, you know, you have the tension between the individual and the consumer, uh, the, the individual and the collective, you know, can I change my own behaviour as a consumer or as a, as, a, as a private citizen in order to affect change or do I have to join with a whole bunch of other people? You have a tension between local and global, should I work in my own neighbourhood or am I looking for something bigger, a world stage? Uh, you have the tension between short-term and long-term. So, you know, am I trying to get something changed this year or do I have a 100-year plan, um, you know, for a, for a kind of revolution? Do you work in the system or do you work outside of the system, you know? Mm. Do you look at established systems like elections um, to affect change within or can you keep on throwing rocks from outside? But I suppose overwhelmingly, I guess, and this really struck me um, coming back to your book, was the tension between cynicism and optimism, mm. you know? And, and I think that might be at the core of, of, of contemporary activism. You mm. know, how do I take the lessons of the past and the kind of, you know, crushing sense of failure that comes with that while still feel like change is possible? Wow, yeah, <laughs> that's so true. There's a lot there that I want to respond to, but I think there's two things that I want to kind of say, which is that, okay... One of the things I find most troubling about contemporary activism today is 
Uh, and I know, okay, I know this is controversial because I brought it up yesterday in Melbourne and it, people got really upset about this. But I think that I'm really going to, I just want to get this across to you, which is that I think the left has given up on the possibility and desirability of revolution. I think that the reason, one of the reasons why contemporary activism fails and continues to fail is because we don't actually want to capture sovereignty. We're afraid of capturing sovereignty. We think, and I think that it's, I mean, if you looked at, if you talk to an, an activist, if they called themselves that, in, you know, the French Revolution or whatever, between, you know, the 1700s and, like, the mid-1900s, the goal of activism and protest was always revolution, which meant literally overthrowing the government and trying to create a better government. Now, if you talk to contemporary activists, very few will ever say that that is the goal. They think that it's bad. And a lot of that has to do with the traumas of Stalin and Mao, and I get that. I get that for sure. Um, but I think that that's one of the problems, is that actually contemporary activists don't want to govern, and therefore it becomes a kind of social marketing. That's the first, that's the first thing that I want to put on the table, is, that, is to ask activists, are you actually trying to have a revolution or not? And I think they actually don't want to. So that's a problem. But the second thing is that, on a more like emotional level, how do I maintain my optimism? <laughs> okay. I want to give everyone, I'm going to give you a, like a little mental device. This is a mental device that I have used successfully to never be burned out in 23 years of activism. Here it goes. So one of the things about social, about revolution that I mentioned before is these four characteristics. Now, one of the characteristics that's so important is that it always comes as a surprise. I am not the first person to point this out. This is, a, this is, this is um, something that people have observed about revolution throughout human history. So Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, he starts the book by mentioning what a surprise it was when the Russian Revolution started. Um, this, is, this is an amazing thing about revolution. So what does this mean, though? Why, is this, why should this make us optimistic? Unlike other phenomena, like a, like a, like, unlike a volcano, for example, where there's warning signs necessarily, there might be no warning signs about revolution coming. And this means that it tends to occur when it seems least likely. Okay, so if it tends to occur when it seems least likely, then whenever we're feeling burned out, it's just around the corner. You see? Whenever you're... When, no, really. This is this... Okay. So <laughs> this is a really weird way of thinking about it, but it really works. Whenever it seems impossible, it's, it's, it's almost there. You know? And this, this the same thing happened with Occupy. So right before Occupy happened, so I was working at this magazine called Adbusters, and I got in touch with leading activists, revolutionaries around the world uh, for this issue we were doing. I got in touch with David Graeber, and I said, David, can you, can you write an article for us about whether or not revolution can happen in America? And he wrote back, he wrote, sent in his, his essay, and the answer was, no, revolution cannot happen in America. A month later, Occupy started. This is my point. So whenever you're feeling depressed, boom, it's about to happen. <laughs> um. Uh, you talk about the sort of fear of revolution and that the left doesn't want, or, or that progressives or whatever you want to call it, doesn't want, doesn't want to take control because they're kind of like, yeah. But, um, but is there also kind of a sense that, that the systems that we're fighting against are just so big and so entrenched um, and really what we can do sort of better is just like keep our, keep our own patch clean? Mm. I mean, I, I guess what I'm speaking to is a sort of a, a sympathy for that kind of idea that, that of just being overwhelmed by, you know, a, a, an America that elects Trump and, and, and a, a system which banks that are too big to fail and, and sort of all of this. Yeah. Um, I mean, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, because if you actually start thinking about literal revolution, what you're talking about is like, for example, America has like 300 million people. So you're talking about a revolution in a country you're going to provide for the needs of 300 million people. Like, this is a tremendous responsibility. 
I think that that's a tremendous responsibility. Obviously, I admit that. And so I think that people are, are afraid of it. But I think that, on the other hand, just strategically thinking, there's no alternative, okay? And this is what... So when we created the idea for Occupy Wall Street and we gave it to, the, to whoever, whoever wanted it, the people who took it up in New York believed in something called prefigurative anarchism. I had never heard of prefigurative anarchism before, but that's what people in New York believed. And that was the idea that we shouldn't make demands of the world that exists. Instead, we should just build like an ideal microcosm. In, so in the middle of Manhattan, they built a place with free food and free medical care, and they composted, and they had bike generators, and it was like a mini utopia. And there was like this magical thinking somehow that if we can create this, this perfect little tiny society, then the rest of the world would collapse around us because everyone would see, look, they have achieved utopia. <laughs> they have consensus-based decision-making and free pizza. You know, <laughs> so, but but it doesn't work because of this question of sovereignty. You know, because I do really think I do really think that that there was this idea that somehow the police could never evict us because we were the sovereign power over the territory because of our magical ritual that we had just done. But they did evict us. Why? Because the actual sovereign called them on the phone and said, please evict those people. <laughs> you see? And so I think it's really important is like, I wish it were true. And after Occupy, I spent four years living in rural Oregon. And I really wished that, that if only I could create a utopian rural Oregon, it would. But it just, it's not. It's, it's, it's not. And so I think that activists just should be more honest with each other, which is that you can, let's just divide into two camps. If you don't believe in revolution, just say it and go over here. And if you do believe in revolution, let's go over here and talk about it. But I'm tired of like us arguing, and this side doesn't actually even want what I'm talking about, which is fine, which is fine, it's fine. But I do want a revolution, because I don't think, that there, I don't think there's any other option. You know. So. Cool. Now, we're going to get to questions from the audience super soon. There are two mics at either side of the stage. If you have a question, and um, I hope you can take opportunity to ask Micah something, if you could make your way to one or other of the mics. Um, and while you're on your way, I guess um, you just raised something that I think is, is an issue for people that are fighting for change, is there is so, much, so many different ways that people think you can achieve that. Yeah. You know, there are so many paths to the same... To, to, to the same conclusion or the same destination, and there's an awful lot of uh, controversy, debate about which one to do. Do you think that people that want change are too busy fighting with each other in order mm. to keep their eye on the main prize? Do you think that people should, as you say, kind of form camps and work on their own stuff, or, or is there a sort of possibility for a, a unified um, sort of progressive yeah. movement? Well, I, I mean, this is, it's tough because I, so I, in my history as an activist, I've always worked independently and I've always followed my, my instinct. So my, I tend to say that everyone should do the path that they think is right. Um, there's a tremendous amount of group think within activism and that actually I think is, is detrimental because if you look at the history of successful revolutions, they're like totally unlikely. You know, like, like uh, the Chinese revolution happens after Mao goes on the long march for 3,000 miles. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Or like the way the Russian Revolution starts. And, you know, so, so I think that it's, the revolutions tend to occur when someone, for whatever reason, has a very strong intuition about how it should be done, and they just listen to themselves. And they proceed even when everyone tells them they're wrong. And so that's why it's very important, even when people disagree with me, I'm like, please follow, follow your intuition. But that does mean you have to develop your intuition. Most people don't have a revolutionary intuition about what can and cannot lead to change. But, 
But yeah, I mean, I talked to so many people before Occupy started, and they told me it was a terrible idea. In fact, very few people said it was a good idea. They had no idea that it was going to take off. And I just knew, I, I knew that Occupy was going to take off. I had an intuition. So, so yeah, I think that we need, we need a period of wild experimentation and that everyone should just really follow, follow your gut instinct, you know? Just go with what may, Honestly, do the thing that makes you most terrified. That's probably going to lead the right way. That's a nice motto. Um, so we've got limited time for questions, so I will ask you to keep it brief. I think we all know the difference between a question and a manifesto. Um, so... <laughs> So um, we're going to start over here at microphone number two. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for everything you've just said. It's just kind of pulled together what I've been thinking. And I feel like, like yourself, I've tried to do things from the inside and the outside, and I've came to the same conclusion that politics is the way forward. And revolution to me is more um, people becoming more sophisticated with that. But how do you convince contempt, like, um traditional activists that politics is the way forward and get everyone together to actually go ahead with that? I mean, wow, I wish I knew because, you know, like if you go back and you look at my like writings after kind of the collapse of Occupy and stuff, I was talking about, wow, we need to do electoral politics. We need to. We can build a social movement. It can be like the Five Star Movement. It can be like the Pirate Party. And everyone's like, no, Black Lives Matter, more street protests. This was long before Trump showed up. And then Trump shows up and wins the election, and it was like, guys, evidence, you know? And so, and even now, it's, it's so, I think that it's like, it's, I think it has something to do with the, okay, basically, you have, it's like, show, don't tell. No one will believe you until you demonstrate it to them. And it's the same thing with Occupy. No one believed us. The media didn't want to listen to us. We called the media, they're like, we're not going to cover that dumb idea that you have for a protest. But then all of a sudden, a week after it started, they had to. So I think that it's really like, it's just time to just ignore all the naysayers and just do it. We really have to do it. Um, obviously, which is easier said than done because it's extremely difficult. But I think that what will happen is once you basically crack the code of how, to, how a social movement can win elections, it'll spread so quickly. So, I mean, Occupy spread to 82 countries really within like two weeks. I mean, it's insane how fast things can spread nowadays. And so it can seem like it's never going to happen, and all of a sudden you do figure out what kind of model this is going to do. It does make some sort of breakthrough in Australia, and all of a sudden it leaps to Brazil and just decimates, you know, the you know, like. So really, it's just it's you have to just demonstrate it instead of telling people about it because no one will ever believe you. Even today, I talk to activists; they just don't. They don't believe. They don't believe. So they can't see it. They can't visualize it. So thank okay. you. Thank you. Microphone number one, Great. please. Thank you. My question, I guess, speaks to um, social enterprise or social entrepreneurship as a creative form of, or an alternative form of uh, protest or activism. Yeah. And I guess I'd like to hear your thoughts on the capacity for social entrepreneurs in this space to be effective out, uh, activists, or are we kind of a little bit um, uh, predetermined to struggle with the, the profit for purpose or profit and purpose uh, paradox? <laughs> um. Can I tell you the truth, what I think? Okay. <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> the, truth, the, truth, the, truth, the truth is, I, I, I do think it's, it's a distraction. Um, you know, like, because part of what happens is as activists is that we want to make a living as activists. And so we have developed certain skills that, are, that we developed for activism, but that we start to see are actually good maybe to make money. And then we start to say, well, I'm not actually making money. I'm actually doing activism in order to make ourselves feel a little bit better. I just think that in life, you really only can do one thing. 
So either you're trying to make money or you're trying to have a revolution. I, don't, I think that the thing is, it's like I would never tell people not what to do, though, because honestly, you should follow your heart, and maybe I'm not seeing something about it. Maybe I'm not seeing something there, you know? But I, but I tend to think that it's very good people, but that we get distracted. It's so easy to get distracted, you know? I think that I think about, when I think about this whole question of money and stuff, you know, I like to bring up Lenin. Everyone always critiques me for bringing up Lenin. Why are you going to bring up Lenin? Well, because there's a lot of stuff that's very interesting about Lenin. You know, first, first of all, the man was so poor, he couldn't even print the communist, like, newspaper. The guy was, like, dead poor, like, poverty, severe poverty, exiled from Russia. And then the Russian Revolution starts, and boom, he's, like, leading a huge populist country. So I just feel like it's because he didn't focus on money that he was prepared. So I guess that would be what I'm saying. But I, obviously, I think good things can happen from social enterprise, and it's, like, it's all good things, but it's, like, it's like not how I would orient my efforts but on the other hand, like I said, I don't want to discourage you from following your dreams and your passion. So do what you want to do, not what I do want to do. Okay. <laughs> All right. Microphone number two, please. Yep. Um, thanks for the interesting and provocative talk. I have to say, I'm personally not convinced, though, because I, I think part of the problem is that the main sources of power in, in the society we live in actually aren't in Parliament. You know, if you look at the power of the corporations, CEOs, unelected bankers and so on, and I think that's... I think that's the reason why every left government that's actually tried to do a similar thing to what you're talking about has failed, trying to work through the existing institutions. If you look at, you know, Syriza in Greece or whether it's the Green Movement or even the Labor Party talked about the same kind of thing. We're a social movement. We want to take control of Parliament. So I think um, I wonder how you come to grips with, with that history of the failure of, of left governments, even contemporary, like you look at Syriza yeah. or yeah. I think even, you know, the way that Podemos and parties like this have moderated yeah. their demands as yes. they get closer to power. Um, yes. So I, personally, I think we need to look to the power that exists outside parliament, not just in, in, in protests, but in, in terms of social power of workers and strikes yes. to actually paralyse production yes. um, you know, as, a, as a way to actually shut down the capitalist economy, like that kind of power yes. um, you know, uh, as a way to actually you know, make revolution and bring social change. But I wonder how you... Um, yes. I think actually that is a lesson of the Russian Revolution. Yes. <laughs> but I think if you look at... Um, yeah, I wonder how you come to grips with yes. the with the experience of the previous sort of attempts yes. at taking government, um, you know, by the left. Yes. No, I, that's, that's good. I love that, I love that question because... What? <laughs> I, love, I love that question. I love that question because precisely because now we've moved forward in our thinking and we're actually addressing the challenges that come from what I'm talking about rather than whether... So this is exactly the direction our, our thinking should go. So, so I think the way that I reconcile the difficulties is that it seems to me that, that the fundamental... Okay, so there used to be this old saying in the left about smash the state. So for me, what that means, in order to smash the state, is you have to gain control of the state. And I think that, that tactically and strategically, the mistake that, these, that Podemos and these organizations, these parties, these movements are making is that they, it's like they want to gain control of the state and then not change the, how power functions. You see, they, they don't, they're not actually transforming how power functions once they get into power they're like oh great we have this vehicle let's drive it and no i think that as soon as we get into power the goal would be to fundamentally transform how power functions so i agree with you right now it's like yes these corporations they obviously exert tremendous control over the governments and if we get into power and don't change how power functions they will also exert tremendous control over us but if we get into power and we're like Great, now we're the sovereign. We can decide that town halls shall run, you know, Congress shall be replaced by this, or we can now push for constitutional reforms, or 
that's what I'd be working on is I would be, I would be instantly fascinated in the ways in which we could fundamentally change how power functions in our society rather than thinking about, and this gets back to the distinction. I mean, one of the things about the left is that we're obsessed with having the right ideas and the right policies, which is why once they get into power, they're like, all I need to do is come up with the best social welfare program or the best educational program. No, it's not about that. It's about changing how power functions. So that's kind of how I look at it. But I, I think it's a great question. So your argument really is that taking sovereignty is the first step on yes. the path to revolution rather than the end game. Exactly. And that you can't fundamentally ch change how power functions without having the power to change how power functions. Like, it's just, we can, we can, we can protest in the streets and show people consensus-based decision-making, but it doesn't matter unless we're the actual mm -hmm. government. I think, though, that one of the things, and, and I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but one of the things that question pointed to was, was there are really kind of two huge pillars of power, right? Yeah. There's the political pillar and then there's the corporate capitalist pillar. Right. And what you're talking about is addressing one, but, yes. but, you know, does the first one have the power to address the second one should the first one be able to be captured? Totally, and that's what, and that's what I want to find out, mm. you know, because I, I would rather us be getting into power and constantly failing than just not even getting into power. I do think that, you know, there is, like, one thing about revolution is it's, like, when it's successful, it triggers um, so much more after. <laughs> I mean, once you get into, once you get into power, that, it triggers, like, a civil war. I mean, basically, like, it's, it's only the first step, but, but we have to make that first step. And I do believe that, that there's no other way. Um, you know, maybe we could use social enterprise and Bitcoin mining to become billionaires to then buy the government... <laughs> But I just don't really believe it somehow. I feel like eventually that way, too, you become like, you know, Bitcoin billionaire and you're... That rubs against the Marxist in you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't seem viable. But, you know, I like that question, though. Okay. Microphone number one, please. Hi. Thanks. That was a really interesting talk, giving us a lot of food for thought. Um, one of the things, though, you mentioned along the way was you were very supportive of leadership um, movement, a leaderless movement. Mm. All great revolutions, or all successful ones that I can think of, have always had a strong leader at the core. Yeah. Um, and had there been a leader in Occupy um, Wall Street, for instance, there may have you may have been able to negotiate a number of changes that obviously didn't happen. Mm. So maybe protests could actually work if you have leaders who are negotiable, who are prepared to negotiate and get some of the change they want. Mm. But even if you're going for full revolution, how do you see that happening leaderlessly? Yeah. No, this is, this is one of the things, you know, it's like, I, I believe that, you know, when I look at the history of, of revolution in the 19th and 20th century, to me, it's an indictment of leaders. To me, it's precisely the strong leader that became the problem, not the solution. And so I, I think that there's, I think that leaderlessness is the right path, but it's a question of how it's practiced. Okay. So so what would be my critique of Occupy Wall Street-style leaderlessness? That, that my critique would be that leaderlessness, as manifested during Occupy Wall Street, became a kind of tearing down rather than building up. So you'd have someone come in, and they'd be like, hey, guys, I'm a PhD in economics. Um, I have some proposals about how we could think about this problem maybe moving forward. Someone else comes in. I have a PhD. I've, I've been a lifelong activist. I've been doing this my entire life. I really think we should do this strategically. And then you'd have some guy or some girl who just, hit, like, this is their first protest. They're, like, 17 years old. And they're like, no leaders. I'm not listening to you. And I think that it's, like, that's the destructive aspect of leaderlessness because we do want the experience, like, you know, the Russian Revolution succeeded largely because Trotsky and Lenin had lived through a failed, their failed revolution, and they brought a tremendous amount of wisdom about how to do it again. 
and had there been someone who's like, we're not listening to you, we hate leaders. So it's not about leaderlessness per se, it's like how it's practiced. So I think that it's like, one way of looking at it is, there's one option to say is, is that there's no one above me, but another way of saying it is that there's no one below me. And so leaderlessness, as I believe it, is to say, you know, hey, we're all equals, there's no one below me, but it's not to say, there's no one who doesn't know any more than I know or doesn't have any expertise. I need to pull them down or who's not better at being on the media. Or like I need to pull everyone down. So that's, that's the difference. But I do think that leaderlessness is essential because what it allows us to do is it allows movements to spread so quickly. If Occupy had had a leader, it would not have spread as dramatically. I really think that that's the core. That's why, that's why it spread to 82 countries is because of the leaderlessness. And I think that, that it holds some sort of key so I don't want to give up on that, but we need to reconceive how it works. Absolutely. Okay, microphone number two, please. Yeah, hi, Micah. Thanks so much for uh, coming all the way down to Australia. Um, from Baltimore myself. So, <laughs> um, One of the things that I think a lot about is, you know, I really like your ideas around electoral change and that being something that spreads across the globe. But you just mentioned yourself that this is something that could potentially trigger a civil war. And I think the yes. U.S., is potentially on the brink of that already. Yes. And I work for an international NGO whose business is going into places who've been devastated by civil wars, places like Syria, places like Iraq, where governments <laughs> or revolutions have fallen down <coughs> and left a big gaping hole. And <coughs> when we got to the point where it was Hillary versus Trump, I had some friends in the anarchist movement who were very anti-Hillary mm. for various reasons and said, I'm going to vote for Trump because I want to see the U.S. fall down. I want to see it all fall apart. And I right. said, coming from my perspective and <coughs> the work that I do, do you really understand what it looks like when places just fall apart on the ba back of these really great ideas and this idea of regime change and revolution and really positive intentions? and the level of violence that ensues and can be protracted for years on end, are we prepared for that? And what is the, um, what does it look like when that happens? Yeah. And how do we recover? And it's something that really deeply concerns me based on my work, so I just wanted to put that out there. As, yeah. Um, since no, you did start to mention it. No, it's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. And like one of the things that's so important is this, is, this gets at why the soul searching that we have to have of do we really want to do this or not? Are we just playing games? Are we just dressing up in costumes? Or are we serious about this? Because even, for example, I mean, if you really study the history of revolution, they're horrible. <laughs> uh, the French Revolution. During the French Revolution, they would load people on, first of all, you could just accuse anyone of being like, you know, a counter-revolutionary. They would take them, they would load them on barges, and they would drown them collectively in the river. That was justice in the French Revolution. The word terrorism is derived from the French Revolution. That's where we came up with the concept of terrorism. So, so what I'm saying here is that some of the worst things about our, our world are the product of revolution, and some of the best things about our world are the product of revolution. And that's why it's a complex and, 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 and disturbing social phenomenon. At the same time, I think that revolution is absolutely essential. It's necessary. And so for, I guess the way I would answer that is to say, Yes, let's get rid of these overly romantic visions of revolution, but let's also get rid of our sincere and deep-seated fear of it. And let, let's figure out, well, is there some way we can mitigate these, these horrible sides? Like, I think getting rid of leaders is one way of mitigating some of the horrible sides of it. Are there other ways that we can do it? Let's go into this eyes wide open, for sure. Um, 
And I think it, but I do think it's really important is I don't think that it's, it's not like having a nice ice cream cone, you know? I mean, there's so many, this, I'm not the first person to say it, you know? Like, it's not, a, it's not a dinner party, you know? It's a horrible thing, actually. It's, and, it's, and it's only justified when the existing world is so bad that it's necessary. Um, we've got hardly any time left, <sighs> so we've got uh, a question on each mic. Let's take them one after each other, and then you can quickly see whether maybe they'll synchronize. Follow up on the previous one, so if you don't mind if I jump in. Um, because my question is really about this idea of two camps, one that wants revolution and one that doesn't. And the thing that worries me about revolution is this idea of revolution is bloody, revolution is violent. Yeah. Um, and you already kind of started to answer this, but is that inevitable? You know, that's the way revolutions have been, but is that the only way? Like, is that the definition of revolution? Right. Or is there something we can do? And so this com came up recently in the US with you know, neo-Nazis on the one hand and then Antifa on the other hand also being violent. And right. so the question is, do we need violence cool. to achieve right. our means? Okay. And let's just hear from microphone number one. Hi, uh, thank you, I'll try and keep it brief. Thank you for a stimulating talk. Um, my question relates to revolution and, and sovereignty as well, because I'm sort of thinking of examples like the Zapatistas or the YPG in, Roj in Rojava in Syria. Um, examples that are kind of about, you know, withdrawing from the state and, I mean, maybe recreate something that looks like a state, but it's a different kind of infrastructure. So what do we, yeah, you know, how do we relate to those examples that are sort of productive withdrawals, perhaps, but are sort of counter-state? So, Wow. Anyway. Okay. That's the last okay, huge... Can you do that in 30 seconds? Wait, well, here, here... Okay, very quickly what I would say over here is that I don't think that violence is essential to revolution. In fact, I, I, do, I do think that the revolution will happen nonviolently, but what comes afterwards is often violent, okay? And I think that just being honest with you, that's how I see it, is that the revolution happens and the rest of the world is like, oh, we need to stop this from spreading. We're gonna use violence. And then you have to, you're forced to defend yourselves. So that's, I think, sad. But for this question over here, I think that, again, it's wonderful to think about sovereignty, but again, you're forced back into this thing about how we actually live in a complex international world and a lot of legitimate sovereignty based on, is based on international recognition of your sovereignty. And so you can't just quite withdraw. You also need some sort of recognition as a state. It's more complicated. So I, so I'm, but I'm inspired by those examples, but also it's not enough. So, but, it, but it's so much to think about, so thank you. I mean, you. Micah, I suppose the thing that you've been talking about right from the start is, is that actually, you know, people do in some ways still have power, um, even though it feels dispiriting or yeah. overwhelming, we still have power. And, and I guess I want to end by quoting from your book, which I think is something that, you know, I really liked reading, which is that we're the ones we've been waiting for. So thanks for coming today. Thanks for joining this session of Antidote. <laughs> Michael will be signing books in the foyer after this. So um, you can make That was another call to arms from Antidote with Micah White on what's next for protest and global activism. And if you like this talk, why not subscribe? Ideas at the House is available through your favourite podcast app. And next week, we have Julie McCrossan and Benjamin Law taking a look at one of Sydney's most iconic festivals, the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. See you then.